Hey, y'all. This is Tressie McMillan-Cottom with my girl and co-host, Roxanne Gay. And we are the host of the Luminary original podcast, Here to Slay. It is February, and this month, Luminary is continuing to amplify Black voices by sharing a selection of favorite episodes. We picked this episode of Here to Slay to share with you because it is a fan favorite. We hear about this one all the time. And so we hope you tune into this episode where you're going to really learn about what it means to protect your intellectual property, protect your brilliant work, and stand up for yourself in the business world, uh, especially a business world that often encourages Black people, Black women, anyone who's marginalized to not stand up for themselves. You can listen to more of us and certainly more of Here to Slay and lots of great other shows by going to luminary.link slash Black Voices. That's luminary.link slash Black Voices. From Luminary, this is Here to Slay. Yeah, I'm interested in how everybody is going to try to convince us that everything is now okay. We see politicians on both sides of the aisle really shitting the bed. Mm-hmm. I think we have a real disconnect in our culture between who is vulnerable and who actually is vulnerable. What are people having affairs doing? What, what are the people with the little secret family I'm doing? I'm just saying. Mm. And like, let's be real. This is life. It's how are you going to fuck and how are you going to get high? I love being black. Kind of dangerous. But shit is pretty lit. Just put on your headphones, your big-ass headphones, so motherfuckers know, don't step. Yep. Magic is happening here. Hello, Tressie. How are you doing? Hey, girl. Listen, I'm actually somewhat hanging in there. I, um, I'm newly medicated again, so we're, you know, so <laughs> let's keep our mm. fingers crossed for that. <laughs> Oh, excellent. New medications. Yes. The My pandemic favorite time was of getting the year. to me. I know. The pandemic was getting to me. So, so your girl went and got new meds. Um, mm. So I think I'm hanging in there. How are you? I- I'm hanging in there. You know, I I have, for the most part, been handling the pandemic quite well, but it is starting to get to me. Mm-hmm. It is. Mm-hmm. I-, I do think I'm going to need not necessarily a medication shift, but a, a medication increase. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Better living through pharmaceuticals, y'all. Just to keep things a little more even keel. That's right. <laughs> no shame in our game, Roxanne. No shame. None. But I am finally getting some work done. I think it just took a long time yeah. for me to to de-stress mm-hmm. and breathe. And so now I'm starting to write again. Um and just thrilling. Make a dent in my backlog, which is I'm actually kind of embarrassed about the backlog I'm dealing with right now, but I was really numb and I was really stuck. And now I'm getting unstuck, which is Mm -hmm. very useful. Uh, And I'm excited about today's conversation because we are going to be talking about intellectual property, Mm -hmm. uh, which is this issue that keeps coming up for us. And we we talk about it quite a lot because we both care very much about our intellectual output and just owning ourselves. Mm Mm-hmm. The idea of ownership to me is foundational to the idea of freedom and justice. I don't want to oversell it, but listen, I am Black and I come from Black folk who didn't come from a lot. Uh, Sometimes at the end of the day, all we had was our little bit of freedom and autonomy. I take Mm -hmm. that thing seriously. My intellectual property for me is about choosing 
when I have to get up and go out into the world and perform or not. It's about my mental health and my well-being. And so, yeah, I take my intellectual property very seriously. I own everything I do or I won't do it and have from the get-go. I won't publish with any, I don't care who they are. I'm not signing it over to the Times or the Washington Post. And I did that long before I had a representative Mm -hmm. and people thought I was crazy. I would publish these massive things on my blog and people would go, you could have run that, you know, in the Atlantic. And I would go, yeah, the Atlantic wanted to give me $500 and to own it forever. Mm -hmm. And guess what? I can talk to 20,000 people by myself and own it. And I just always thought I went with my gut and my gut said, one, don't trust white people trying to give you, trying to take something from you. And two, own your shit. And so I have owned it. Uh, And so, yeah, we think about and talk about intellectual property a lot, which is why we wanted to talk about it with the Here to Slay audience. Hopefully for them to also think about IP a little Mm -hmm. bit more deeply and critically in their own lives, because these days we all are producing something. Creative. We are. And one of the things I really, I, I'm so glad to hear that you own all your shit because I too own all my mm-hmm. shit. And I've done that since I was a little zygote of a writer. Yes. So, because, and I will say the luxury of a day job made that possible. That is true. I Like I tell writers, a day job is your greatest gift, not only for paying your rent, but it allows you not to compromise your intellectual property. Mm-hmm. And I don't think a lot of younger writers know that nine times out of 10, when you tell an organization that you're not going to do this work for hire, that you want to retain your copyright or share the copyright, Mm -hmm. they will. Uh, I did that with The Times. Yep. I did that with The Guardian. I've Mm -hmm. done it with every single contract. And I simply don't give up copyright. Now, up front, I say, I am not going to give up my copyright. So if that's a deal breaker, we don't even need to engage in this dance. And so- I don't know how I figured that out, but I think it's because I actually read the contracts. And when I do, people sometimes I even read releases and Mm -hmm. I am notorious for pushing back on releases. You are going to have to show me how you cut the footage that we record. That's right. I have to be able to have right of approval. I I never, ever use it, but I am not going to let you play the okie doke with me. That's right. That's how you get pieced together. And I cry every time I see the Martin Luther King commercials, you know, where he's, I have a dream speech has been juxtaposed over the McDonald's, (laughs) Mm -hmm. the McDonald's arches. I cry almost every time I see that. And it is, for me, a personal horror story. If I woke up one day and my work had been so divorced from my values and what I believe in and it could be cut any kind of way to reinforce or sell something that I don't believe in, I think I would just die. Or if I was already dead, I'd come back and I would haunt the people who were doing it to me. So, yeah, it really it is about like who you are and who you're going to be in the world. I do think it is funny right? I said to think about I have no idea where that came from. It's not mm-hmm. like I came up from some nobody in eastern North Carolina ever told my family, make sure you tell the New York Times you got to own your copyright. Like that's insane. Mm-hmm. That's beyond anything anyone ever imagined. But my gut always told me before I had anything to show for myself, my gut was, if nothing else, Tressie, be able to walk away from the table. Absolutely. In work and in relationships. But that's a whole other story. Who we got today, Roxanne? (laughs) You know, we have some really interesting guests today who are going to help us think about intellectual property, how we manage it, and, and give us some of the advice and insights that we didn't have early in our careers. Um, 
And so I'm excited about these conversations because whether you're an up-and-coming filmmaker or a writer or a podcaster, whatever creative endeavor you're engaging in, your craft matters. You've been working on that craft for years by the time you get to a point where you can show it to the public. And so you have to protect what you create. So we are going to be talking to one of my favorite people, Shantavia Johnson, about intellectual property. She is a brand strategist, former attorney, which I think that totally matters, and now Mm -hmm. a writer at the intersection of law and innovation and pop culture. And, you know, she talked to us about thinking about your brand and business savvy when it comes to protecting our intellectual genius. But she also talks to us about the context of understanding what intellectual property means culturally. We had a really great and impactful time with her. We did. Uh, She's so intelligent and she's so vibrant. And I learned quite a lot from our conversation with her. And I thought I already knew a lot about intellectual property and branding, but she brought in, she she, she brought the heat, I must say. She really did. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But first up, we have another awesome, if I do say so myself, podcast duo joining us. Uh, Brittany Luce and Eric Eddings of The Nod have joined us today to share their thoughts on how the podcast industry is reckoning with creative ownership, where creators are falling through the cracks, uh, and what they're doing now with the new show on Quibi. So let's get into it. Good morning, Brittany and Eric. How are you guys doing? Good, actually. It's pretty good, actually. Yeah. Rainy day, but a good morning. Yeah. I like rain. I'm a water sign, though, so I don't have any problems with that. (laughs) I appreciate it more at night so that I can sleep. Yes. I'll take it. I'll take it at night. During the day, I'm like, "Eh." having it during the day when I can't lay down is just a waste of the rain. As if (laughs) as if the rain exists for me to sleep. Purely for you to sleep. (laughs) Well, it should. (laughs) <laughs> I, I can't imagine any other reason for the rain to be there. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, you guys were talking about birth signs and astrology. And what Roxanne just said just reminds me that, yes, we are both very much Libras. I really do think the rain is there just for me. Just, just so we're clear. Um, I say during the middle of Leo season, I really, Leos are just as arrogant. They're just, you know, more out there about it. But It's true. But a Libra can take a Leo any day. Hey, it is what it is. Draw that line in the sand. <laughs> the title of your podcast makes complete sense. It already made sense. Mm-hmm. But yeah. the fact that y'all are both Libras is like, is actually. <laughs> yeah, we are indeed both Libras. Roxanne says she's a super Libra. I am too. The only other thing I have, believe it or not, is Taurus. Mm. Really? Yes. That's me wanting to be at home. According there you to go. The That's I, true. I'm a nester. Yeah. I'm a big oh, nester. A nester. Oh. I nest hard. It's so nice to meet a black man who nests. I love it. Why do I? I mean, I like to go outside occasionally, but like inside is where it's at. I can see that because I see your poster for your podcast, the bookcase. It's very chic. I spent a lot of time. Brittany heard way too much conversation about what curtain should I get. I really love this rug, uh, but it I became don't know. a group. It became a group concern. Very oh, quickly. Right, you need my number then, because I'll do that with you all day long. Oh, I mean, follow up soon to come. Yes. Nobody else wants to do it with me, by the way. None of my girlfriends, I tell them they are all failing at femininity. None of them care (laughs) about Share me on the Pinterest board. I'm with it. Oh, 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 bruh. Oh, it's on. Yeah, I will put you on my Pinterest board. Okay. When I figure out, when I figure Pinterest out, I'm going to be right there. 
Brittany, you and I are, we, we, we're going to get along just fine. <laughs> yeah. Pinterest, yeah, it's just a bridge too far. It's just opportunity. Yeah. yeah. I never got started wedding planning, I think, because I, didn't, I couldn't follow <laughs> Pinterest. No pressure at all. <laughs> but welcome to Here to Slay. We are actually very excited to talk to two Black creators. Over the past couple of weeks, Tressie and I have been thinking quite a lot about creativity, the creative economy intellectual property, and who gets to own their knowledge. Mm -hmm. But before we talk about the nod and all things intellectual property, we would love to talk about the very first project that you two work together on, and that's For Colored Nerds. Yes. Uh, for our listeners who don't know, For Colored Nerds was an independent podcast you guys created and hosted. But in 2017, you launched The Nod on Gimlet Media, which is owned <laughs> by Spotify. But what brought Four Colored Nerds about? And uh, what were you trying to do? What was the intellectual project there? Well, the thing about it is Brittany and I have always kind of had these really long, expansive conversations about life, Blackness, and culture. Uh, it actually started out a, a Britney's birthday party. Uh, <laughs> she had this, uh, she had this birthday party. We ended up at a cigar bar after, and we just started talking, nothing formal, literally just over some whiskey and five hours. I was going to ask you what liquor was involved. I knew it was, it was where brown. this was going. It was you got to have the brown. Okay, it was on the brown. That's all. Exactly. Okay. I knew. It was brown. I knew. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, but five hours later, we realized we had just covered so, so much. And it was this conversation that left us both feeling, I think, renewed and interested and kind of mm -hmm. like wanting to dive into both ourselves and our culture. And we realized we had been having those conversations consistently for years, you know, whether mm -hmm. it be sharing articles, uh, you know, talking about albums or movies. And so we just decided, like, what if we captured these conversations? The other thing to note, I have to say, is that Eric doesn't like talk on the phone. Yeah. It doesn't like talk on the phone at all. So anytime we hung out, it would be like, I wouldn't like, this was back when I was living in Harlem and Eric was living in Brooklyn. Um, and we would meet up every few months. In between, I would not be able to catch Eric at all on the telephone. Mm -hmm. All day long on Gchat, we sent each other articles and we would talk about those like on Gchat all day. But then once we got face to face and we started talking, it was like, we were all, we always knew when we hung out, it was going to be like a four to eight hour uh -huh. engagement. Yeah. Um, but yeah, then once I moved from Harlem to Brooklyn, I ended up coincidentally enough moving like literally three minute walk. Like it was like corner to corner from Eric. And then it just like, you know, we kind of tried to start a podcast before it wasn't working out. We didn't take it seriously. As you all know, podcast turns out work. Time consuming. Who knew? Yeah. Who knew? <laughs> yes. Time consuming. Yep. Um, not like the chillest hobby. It's not necessarily like no. the point. You know what I'm saying? Um, but yeah, once we were living really close together, we were kind of like, all right, we are really interested in this. We think it would be fun. It's a good way for us to spend time together as friends. Let's like give it a shot. And, you know, luckily enough, listeners kind of started to find the show in droves and they communicated, at least to us, you know, that that was something that they really engaged with. And so that pushed us to kind of go deeper. And so, you know, when we did hear from Gimlet, it felt like we were kind of at this place where we knew like, oh man, you know, we have something. We have mm -hmm. something that is connecting. Uh, and we want to make it, you know, we want to make it stronger. We want to really dive into this because it feels like an opportunity for the both of us. Mm -hmm. So what you guys just described feels very um, symbolic of how I think Black people in particular approach creating, mm -hmm. which is uh, very similar, by the way, to Roxanne and I's origin story for this podcast, which mm -hmm. was there was a conversation we wanted to have 
couldn't have it in most mainstream places. Yeah. Could not have it unless we were together, <laughs> right? There were just a certain set of people. There was a space we wanted to create. We thought we can't be the only ones who want yeah. to do this. That just feels real authentic to me about how Black people approach creativity um, because often what we're trying to do is carve out space, right? Mm -hmm. In these places that aren't always very hospitable to us. But then the reality kicks in, like you said. Mm -hmm. So you need resources. Mm -hmm. You need people to help support this thing because it isn't, as you said, a one or two person operation. It does take a team. So the listeners may not know, when we we mentioned that uh, you guys were recorded by Gimlet, Gimlet is one of the largest players mm-hmm. in the podcast space. So it was like a big deal. Yeah. What were yeah. some of the things that you were thinking about as you thought um, that pushed and pulled you into seeking out resources or uh, support in in launching the show in sort of a bigger way? Well, I mean, I think you you put it the right way. We recorded by Gimlet. Like, uh-huh. in all honesty, what we started recording September of 2014, March 2015 is when we first heard from Gimlet, from specifically, mm-hmm. you know, Matt Lieber and Alex Bloomberg, who um, were the president and CEO of, of Gimlet Media and the co-founders. We had not heard from anybody. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like no other company, no other organization had reached out to us before them. And they actually had never reached out to any other independent podcast before us. Wow. So it was like a kind of like, I feel like the first time we met them, it was kind of like a giddy kind of like first date situation like yeah. who does what <laughs> like what's what like you know i mean and also too you mentioned that gimlet is one of the largest players in the podcast space in 2015 they were among one of the only, only. podcast yeah. only like production Networks. companies mm-hmm. yeah. yeah that mm-hmm. was that was I mean, you know they, they were kind of like the thing and the thing is though is that we ended up falling in love with audio once we started yeah. making podcasts we actually started listening to more podcasts and, and understanding mm-hmm. our like wanting becoming curious rather about audio storytelling and pretty much like you know Gimlet was a name that had come up over and over again as a place that was doing really yeah. exciting work in that space so when we first heard from them we were extremely flattered and and excited but again it was them reaching out to us first and the interesting thing about it is like, you know, what they were communicating was basically, you know, on this side, it's a career. You know, what mm-hmm. we have been doing as this, you know, labor of love, like mm-hmm. literally it was, you know, something that that uh, brought us fulfillment. I would wake up, you know, when my newborn was asleep in the middle of the night and edit, you know, just just because I wanted the show to be good. Um, but what they communicated was, you know, basically their scale out here. You know, mm-hmm. uh, you need to, you can be marketing your show in a different way. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can, ex- if you expand your team, you can expand the range of storytelling. Maybe you can go back to weekly. Uh, and so, you know, where we have listeners who are writing to us and they're saying, we want more, you know, like you guys were weekly, now you're bi-weekly, come back, you know. Uh, and, you know, when's your next live show? All these things that as two people, we were kind of struggling to put all the pieces in place. Mm-hmm. Uh, not necessarily because of lack of capability. We plan, you know, we we were doing all those things, mm-hmm. but we just also had to maintain a job, mm-hmm. you know, uh, families, relationships, lives, families, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And so it was really attractive the ability to be able to one professionalize, uh, mm-hmm. you know, what had for us been, you know, more than a hobby, but not a, you know, what I'm saying not a career, yeah. Uh, and then the ability to to reach an audience with a message that we thought was important. That was really attractive to us. And so, you know, 
Brittany actually ended up going to work for Gimlet, not through for Color Nerds. And then I started about six months later, mm-hmm. basically both starting out in different pieces of the company, mm-hmm. Brittany hosting another show called Sampler and me yeah. working as a development producer. And all the things we were kind of learning, we were still funneling into for Color Nerds. We continued to make it even after we worked at Gimlet. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Because again, that storytelling, that space was really important to us. And, you know, it wasn't immediately on the table for us to create a show when we came in. We had no. to kind of be no, vetted no, 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 first no. a little bit. Yeah, I mean, and I'll say when I started working at Gimlet in September of 2015. So they reached out to us initially in March. I started working there in September. Eric started the following April. But for that six months between March and September, they had become kind of formal, informal mentors to us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, we would go to something they had, like an internal training that they had for their employees called radio mm-hmm. class every Friday morning. I was lying to my boss at the time in which marketing. Is, which he was is like, totally was fine. Like, yeah. I was like, <laughs> I have therapy every Friday morning at 10 o'clock in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. And because I'm depressed. I mean, I probably actually was, but I had therapy on Tuesday night. But he, didn't know that. he didn't know my therapy was Tuesday night at 7.30. But um, yeah, we were like, we were participating in their internal trainings. Uh, we, they offered us their studios to record our independent podcast in every Saturday. So we were allowed to go there, you know, every Saturday, every other Saturday and record and do what we needed to do. They were pretty generous with us, I'll say at first, as far as like, you know, welcoming us sort of into the fold. Mm -hmm. But also like we also, I think, provided a lot to them. Yeah. I mean, well, yeah, they came to you. I keep I just want to point out. I don't want it to get buried for our audience. They approached you. Yes. Initially, like the start of this relationship was one where they saw value in what you all were producing and creating. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I was the first black person that they hired. Ever? Ever. I believe it. <laughs> yes. It I believe was like it. the third or fourth. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we we were kind of like, hey, we have this, this thing that we're already doing. We're so grateful for all of the resources and the instruction and the learning that we've been able to receive and get here at Gimlet. We would like to use your kind of style of storytelling, but use it to talk about Black people and also infuse it with our friendship, our style, the things that we're interested in, our particular point of view. It seemed like something that would make a lot of obvious sense. And truthfully, a lot of people at Gimlet took me out for long walks and coffee, other people who weren't in management, and said, I don't know why Gimlet doesn't just pick y'all up. I don't know why they didn't do that from the beginning. Y'all should really do a show that's just yeah. the two of you hosting. I don't understand why they don't just pick up for colored nerds. So many people had those back channel conversations with us. So it seemed like something that would be very obvious. We had some pushback, but we were, we had a really great team of people yeah. who worked with us, you know, our producers and editors who like helped us develop this idea. We initially sort of pitched them with something that Eric and I had worked on on our own. They said they couldn't hear what it sounded like. They said they couldn't hear. And that it didn't have an audience. They didn't have an audience. It would be difficult to sell ads on because stories about um, anything racial, I guess. Even though I'm like, it's just black. I'm living. I'm not like doing anything <laughs> racial right now sitting in my house. Like, I don't know what that means. Uh, but yeah, Pepsi's not going to buy ads on stories about black people. I don't know if Pepsi's bought an ad there since or ever. But that's beside the point. But, but that, was we, the, that was the Yeah, we received a lot of pushback. But mm-hmm. then once we, you know, we retooled the idea. We had 
an amazing editor, so many great producers yeah. who, who worked with us on it in, in their spare time. Um, and then we presented it to them again. They fell in love with it immediately. Um, and that was sort of how the nod was born. Yeah. So there's, there are a lot of benefits to having an independent podcast. You have complete control mm-hmm. and you own your intellectual property. Mm-hmm. But when you move into an organization like Gimlet, you get all kinds of things. You get material support, you get marketing support, production support, people that you can bounce ideas off of, Mm -hmm. probably access to booking and booking networks. Mm -hmm. But there is a cost as well when you move into an organization like Gimlet. And Eric, you were recently quoted in Neiman Lab as saying, our podcast is such a consistent piece of conversation in this current moment, and yet it's not actually ours. And I'm guessing many people were surprised to learn that. So what is that tension like where you have all of this support and you have an incredibly successful podcast, but you don't own it? Well, it's it's limiting, to be frank. Uh, mm-hmm. While we were making the nod at Gimlet, I would say creatively, we had a bit of freedom to be able to make the stories that we wanted to make. And that became really uh-huh. attractive to us. We we had not really had that before. I could see a story that I thought was important and report it out and get it out in the way I thought it should be told. But behind the scenes, we were kind of always at the mercy of how the company was shifting, how the organization was shifting. And it often felt like it was important to have our show around like Absolutely. in the mix, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but it was not necessarily important to push our show. Ooh. Does that make sense? Oh, and does, so- it, does it make sense? <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> and so, you know, it's this, it's this weird it's this weird uh, mix where you, you go out to the world and you're celebrated and, you know, and yeah. I think we deserve those laurels. But there's also this piece that we can't quite say. Because we don't know what that's going to now do to this relationship. And it's it's weird when, you know, the industry is prioritizing us for our voice, mm-hmm. uh, for how we yeah. tell stories. And yet we're running into kind of these subtle boundaries of like how we're actually able to engage that voice. And it, it wasn't until we actually, I think, left the organization and transitioned to our, yeah. uh, our new show, Quibi, that we really started to kind of run into the boundaries of that. Uh, because as we know, this moment pops up and it's, you know, it's been complicated because Black voices are now, you know, uh, being pushed in this way uh, mm-hmm. that I think is important. But we haven't quite seen enough to know why we're being, you know, like if if it's actually real support or if it's temporary. And so next thing you know, we're seeing our podcast that we put hundreds of hours into. There's literally hundreds Thousands, more. really, actually. Yeah. There's so many episodes, over 100 episodes, you know, of our lives into. Mm. We're seeing that jump back into uh, the conversation as an urgent piece. Gimlet celebrating that show as well. And yet we actually have no functional control over it. You no. know, we decided to want to just promote the Quibi show. And we're realizing we're having to ask permission to right. connect the dots for our audience. Mm-hmm. The audience sees this as the same show. Yeah. You know, but in reality, they are a gatekeeper for my own voice. Yeah. For mm-hmm. what people associate with me. 
Like we haven't recorded a new episode of the Nod podcast, what, since January, probably? Yeah. Um, but yeah, to Eric's point, not only do we have to ask for permission to access the feed and be able to put our new content down the feed to be able mm-hmm. to, you know, keep our podcast listeners in the loop of what we're doing. Um, and they have, you know, given us permission to be yeah. able to do that. <laughs> but the other thing is, is that there's also, there are ads that are still being put on our content, content that at different points, during our time within the organization, we would sometimes get pushback on um, mm-hmm. the voice that we were using, the tone, the syntax, um, the uh-huh. topics that we wanted to cover, yeah. um, the viability for ad sales. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. We're in, you know, I'm not going to get into detail today because I want my blood pressure to stay good. But I had some really <laughs> troubling conversations at times with people about the fact that Black storytelling doesn't necessarily mean... Like black storytelling doesn't necessarily mean that I'm all of a sudden going to give a Malcolm X missive every single week. Oh, I see what you're saying. Absolutely. You know what I'm saying? Okay. And that like every advertiser is going to run scared. Now, I mean, I actually, I would love a podcast like that. I don't think I'm (laughs) the person to host it. Um, But it was a, a frequent clash between a fundamental lack of understanding of the type of content that we were creating and what we were doing, what we wanted to do. Mm -hmm. Um, And then also, yeah, just a general sort of fuzziness around, like to Eric's point, the boundaries that existed for us, whether that was in freedom, in storytelling, or in tone or topic or subject matter. Um, And also to resources, fuzziness around access to resources. Now I'll say our actual team, the people that we mm-hmm. had as producers and editors and fact checkers and all of those people, we had an incredible, our engineer, like we had an incredible team of people who we were so fortunate to work with. I have so many colleagues from Gimlet who I regularly talk to like every day, mm-hmm. people who I adore. Mm-hmm. We just frequently had this very fuzzy, heavily boundaried relationship um, between our show specifically and management that it made it very frustrating at times. And and it's made it even more frustrating, I think, after the fact to be in this position where we don't really have full access to this show that, to Eric's point, our audience sees as an extension of what we were doing before. I mean, right now- And us. And and also, too, the work on our Quibi show that's currently going down the Nod podcast feed- has no Gimlet employees producing it. Mm-hmm. So but it's like Gimlet gets so they get to benefit the from your labor ownership of your Correct. product. Uh-huh. I will say they don't run ads on the new like Quibi. I want to just to clarify, they don't run right. ads on the new Quibi right. show stuff. They run it on our entire back catalog, which Eric said we spent thousands of hours building. <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> but it's it's just frustrating. It's just there's this permission and boundaries, and it's it's mm-hmm. kind of confusing and maddening, and it leaves a bad taste in my mouth for an experience that I would say on the day to day level with our team. And, you know, coming up with story ideas and reporting and editing and, you know, really making these beautiful stories. That was such an incredible experience. And looking back, some of those memories are tough, I think, to deal with right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. I can imagine. I know that when Tressie and I were shopping around the podcast, one of our biggest considerations was, do we get to own our show? And when this relationship ends, do we get to take our brand and our show with us? Mm -hmm. And that was a non-negotiable point. Deal breaker for many people. I mean, it filtered out lots of partners. Yeah. Yeah. That's why like some of the Gimlets and the Crooked Media and great organizations, but 
you know, they're IP hawks. Yeah. That that's what they're <laughs> looking for. It's not even about the present. They want exactly what they're doing with your back catalog. They want to be able to monetize content in perpetuity. Uh, so it's challenging. But now you guys are at Quibi mm-hmm. and doing a new show and uh, venturing into the video format. You are working five days a week, which is yeah. a hectic, <laughs> hectic schedule. <laughs> you tell me. <laughs> <laughs> So what has that transition been like? Uh, what are you guys doing with the, is it, it's also, if I understand correctly, called the nod. Correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so do you, have you made any different decisions in terms of your intellectual property during this transition? And what has that transition been like? What's going well? Uh, what are things that you may not be loving about this? Well, the thing that is interesting is like the actual, again, the making of the show is everything that we would hope for. Mm -hmm. You know, we're able to tell different Black stories every single day of the week. And that is a privilege. That is what we had hoped for. We're able to do that. We're able to show our listeners kind of what we've been trying to do uh, in a way that we haven't before. But I think that, you know, the thing that does make it complicated is we're now experiencing success. Where do we go from here? Because right now you still see Gimlet's name on every single episode Episode. of our show. Mm -hmm. They are executive producers of our show. And we have little say, you know, in what happens next. If, you know, as long as we have the privilege of working with Quibi, you know, and Gimlet doesn't offer us any choice in the matter, Gimlet will be a part of what we produce. They, you know, right now, frankly, receive all of our pitches, you know, uh, scripts. Wait. Uh, Yeah, because they're executive producers on the show. Yeah. And the executives that we work with specifically from Gimlet, we have good relationships with them, right. but it's still- It's complicated. Like, it's a complicated mm-hmm. presence. Yeah. And it, yeah. And so it, that it, means that creative decisions are being made by committee, basically, uh, or could be, like if they, they wanted could to. They could be. Right. They could yeah. be. Let me, yeah. yeah. So, but the ba- basis of your relationship with particular executives sort of massages that, but there's always that thing hanging out in the back exactly. of the mind, I would imagine. Absolutely. Um, and we ain't got to imagine. We've been black women for a long time. <laughs> um, you know, it's like having a white angel and devil on your shoulder. You know, (laughs) they could be an angel, but you never know. There's a lot of change in this industry, you know, like even Gimlet has changed three times over. Oh, yeah. Uh, If, you know, if we get people who decide to go a different way with our show, Mm -hmm. we then might have to worry about how we're going to manage that because we're really happy with what we're able to accomplish on Quibi, with what we're able to do, the stories we're able to tell, the people we're able to talk to. And so that fear, you know, even though it's not realized in this exact moment, that doesn't go away. And that's still that's still a hard thing to place on a creator when at the end of the day, you should want me to be able to create the thing that you're mm-hmm. <laughs> you put me in the position to help mm-hmm. create. You yeah, know? Yeah. And I have to worry about whether or not you're going to decide to limit my voice. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that that is hard. And and all we have asked for is a piece. You know, we didn't say you gotta go. No, right. We're asking for a piece. We acknowledge that, like, they did put resources into <laughs> the show, but um, I think that for me, it's it's just like I, th- I think that, again when you go back to the idea of like IP Hawks, like it's not nothing to like record the episodes. <laughs> like, it's not nothing mm-hmm. to have. You know, the, come ideas, up with the idea for the show, the storyboard it to bring, the, yeah, to bring these knowledges it's and not histories nothing. and no. no. 
And also, I would say your voice matters. Yeah, exactly. Like you can't replicate that. Yeah, no. you can find someone to do the day to day and to do some of the material production work. It, it, it's a, it's a skill, but you can find that. But voice can't be taught. No, I mean, look, if they wanted to hire two other black people mm-hmm. to make the nod, <laughs> it just doesn't mm-hmm. work. It's just as much about. <laughs> Eric's and my relationship and our friendship, we've been best friends for 15 years. We were friends for nine years before we started working together. Mm -hmm. And we made For Colored Nerds for almost three years before Mm -hmm. The Nod came out. Mm -hmm. All of that feeds directly into the product that audiences listen to from July 2017 on. And it feeds directly into the product that we currently make with Mm -hmm. The Nod with Brittany and Eric on Quibi. Um, Yeah, we're just, we are literally irreplaceable parts of the team and of the process of making the show. And I think that that deserves to be recognized. Like to Eric's point, right. we didn't say y'all got to go. We understand that you you put some things up, but we put some things up too. And and mm-hmm. frankly, and I, I think, mm, I can't remember who said it. It was in either some piece by Nicholas Qua, I think for Neiman Lab or for the Hot Pod newsletter. But in proportion to what we had, I think we put up considerably more, more. than they yeah. did yeah. in proportion to what they had. And I think there's a this common idea in media, specifically mainstream media, that to invest in specifically black talent, but really the talent of anybody who's not white or anybody who, you know, who isn't a part of that sort of like mainstream white, heterosexist, patriarchal, transphobic, you know, mm-hmm. rather anybody who isn't a part of that sort of mainstream white identity, it's like a risk of some sort. Yeah. Right, right. Because you could go, wow, there's this caginess in dealing with the white power brokers in creative endeavors. And I say this not just as a person who does the podcast, as we do. Mm-hmm. I think about it as a writer. Mm-hmm. I think about it as a speaker, as mm-hmm. an academic. Certainly. That where you are negotiating with uh, white gatekeepers, there's always this like caginess, as y'all described it, like where they think you could go Malcolm X on them at yeah. any moment. And they got to keep tabs, you know. Even beyond that, I think I think that frequently, I would say even, I can definitely see that in academia, but I think frequently in media, I think there's this weird story and you see it when people provide excuses as to why they haven't diversified their organizations, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that the talent isn't there or that when the talent is there, it's not developed enough and that frankly, yeah. the content won't be as good right. as what they're making. Never mind the fact that their idea of what is good is informed by their specific yeah. Yeah. proclivities and their experiences and things like that. Because the idea I've listened to in preparation for this show, because of course, Black girls always do their homework. So in preparing for us to do our show, I listened. I did what one is supposed to do. And let me just tell you, white men are making some crap content, ladies and gentlemen. I cannot believe the idea that there is a standard for like content creation that they think sounds like the rambling white dude talking about, you know, whatever comes to his mind that day. And that somehow that's the thing we need to live up to. When you bring so much obvious creative energy uh, right. to a to a genre that frankly doesn't have it if we don't show up, and it's interesting too because initially you know we we got shit because we were breaking their rules. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, we didn't understand why I had to use this type of music. I mm-hmm. wanted to, uh, you know, we wanted yeah, to like yeah. we made changes to their structure to actually tell the stories we thought needed to be told, mm-hmm. and they, it, you know, and initially there was resistance to that. Uh, and it's interesting, just I think Brittany actually made a really good point on Twitter about this happening in a creative field. But if you look at like 
business. You know, mm-hmm. if you think about a VC, they will invest in a company. They will mentor those uh, those founders. Mm-hmm. They will literally provide them with everything that they can to help that company succeed for a piece, a but fraction. not right. all of it. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting why that can't happen creatively. Exactly. Yeah. You could be a co-founder, have an idea for a company, and other people could have that idea for a company. Like, for example, let's say you wanted to start a podcast company. I think we've all seen that a lot of people maybe call have it had, Gimlet. Maybe yeah, call it Gimlet. Maybe. But a lot of people have had that same idea. It's a good idea. But the thing is, is that you decided you wanted to start this company and you go around and you shop for people to invest sometimes millions of dollars yes. in your idea. Yeah. And the idea is that when they invest in you, they may get the money back and they may not. They, may they not. know that when they invest, they decide not to be salty about it either way. Mm-hmm. So you can somehow accept all of this money and to Eric's point, all this mentorship from other people. And you still consider the idea for the company to have been yours originally and yours specifically. Mm-hmm. And it's something that you own. And that it's something where if another company decides that they want to buy you out, then you know that you deserve to have a certain amount of equity or stake. Um, and, and you get like actually compensated for that. Mm-hmm. And I just like to Eric's point, what we are asking for and what we are talking about we actually want to see, not just with us, who knows what's going to happen with us? To be honest, who knows? The reason why we keep talking about this is because we're fortunate enough to be able to continue to work, do work that we like. We're fortunate enough to like be able to keep roofs over our heads. There are a lot of people who are in positions where they're not that fortunate and they right. dealt with the same stuff that we've dealt with. So it's like, we want to be able just to keep sort of banging the drum for other people who don't feel like they have the freedom to do that. But mm-hmm. like, we don't know what's going to happen with us, but we do think that that sort of same logic should be applied, not just in our situation, but across creators of all backgrounds, like across like all media, like what we are like, and how do I put this is, I want to say it was in one of the articles that we appeared, I can't remember, but like there are good deals out there. Yeah. It happens. <laughs> it happens. It happens. It happens. Just we're not getting them. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's just, yeah. People like us yeah. aren't getting them. Those deals are out there. There are more equitable, favorable yep. deals that both oh, yeah. parties end up feeling good about. They exist. Yeah. They're just not coming our way. There you go. Yeah. And that's one of the things I think creators need to know, like that there are there is a lot possible. And a lot of it, I think, does depend on like your lawyer. And representation, yeah, absolutely. Like, like a lawyer who's willing to imagine something more for you. I know that when we were looking for a home for our show, one of our representatives who shall go unnamed just said, what you want is not possible. Mm-hmm. And wow. so I happened to have an entertainment lawyer and I just said, well, he makes the impossible possible. And then he <laughs> did. Uh, and so it's interesting that sometimes the people who are supposed to be on your side also gatekeep. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that enough creators understand that. So knowing what you know now and the third iteration of a creative project together, what advice would you give not only to your younger selves um, who were starting out with Four Colored Nerds, but to creators who want to get into podcasting and or uh, video casting, for lack of a better word? Well, I think it's still complicated. I think you have to make the decision, you know, that feels right to you. But I think the big thing that is important is one, get representation. We did not have a lawyer when we negotiated, you know, mm-hmm. our, our deals. Uh, and it didn't seem know, apparent that we would need one. That's the other exactly. thing I'll say. 
It did yeah. not seem apparent. We had a lawyer for the deal that we negotiated with Quibi because that's like a requirement basically in TV. They they don't move that's, without that. That's what but, unions do. Hello. Exactly. Unions exactly. have set that standard in television, people, and it has not happened in the same way in the radio slash audio space. No. Yeah. The yeah. other thing I'll say is when we were working at Gimlet, Eric and I both, when I, I started as a host and Eric started as a producer and our employment agreements looked the same. Like mm-hmm. six months apart, different roles. They look the same. Now, I think since Spotify has purchased Gimlet, now hosts have, I think, like more so like talent contracts. And I think yeah. that's made more apparent. But it's important that like any point of negotiation, whether it seems like it's being made explicit to you or not, if you're exchanging your voice or talent for some sort of money, then like you need to have a lawyer involved. Even yeah. if it seems like it just looks like a run-of-the-mill employment contract, like what you would get if you worked you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. As a security guard or as a marketing, you know, associate, like it's it's definitely something different. The thing about it is opportunity and exposure is not enough. Uh, you have to, you know, right to your point, you have to either find people who can dream bigger than you can yes. or expand yeah. your dream to the furthest reaches yeah. of what you hope to achieve. Mm-hmm. And then Think about what you might need at that point. And so as many of the seeds as you can right now to make that possible. You know, we we wanted to reach more people than than we were reaching at the time. But we had I, I, I don't think Brittany or I imagined that the, the amount of people we've reached would be this expansive. The, the places we would end up would be at this point. We could not have seen that. And if we had, we would have paused a bit more to say we need to talk more about this. I'm excited. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you're excited. Yeah. But this doesn't feel ethical and it doesn't feel equitable and it does not feel fair. And I think we need to negotiate more to receive that because otherwise you don't know what box you might be painting yourself into mm-hmm. or, or pushing yourself into later down the line. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and again, like I said before, I think we have still achieved a remarkable amount of success. I, f- I consider myself Absolutely. so lucky, so blessed. Absolutely. Um, but I also think that's why I feel, I think Brittany as well, we feel a responsibility to communicate about, you know, the, whether it be the mistakes we've made or just the mm-hmm. choices we made in general, because we want we want others to have that same opportunity. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think there's a long tradition of especially Black creatives doing exactly that, using their creative success to tell these stories for the creatives who are coming up behind them. We can literally see the history of like Black folk in this country trying to do that for mm-hmm. each other. And so you guys are in the right historical trajectory and timeline, <laughs> if that helps make you <laughs> feel any better. Thank and, you. Le- and here's what would make us feel better. We have a question that we like to ask everyone who is on the show, and especially Especially uh, when we have Black folks on the show, which is, you know, mm-hmm. almost always, which is mm-hmm. how can we help you do you? Hmm. How can y'all <laughs> help us do us? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Us and also our listeners. Yes. How can the show us? How can we help you do you? Oh, wow. I think there, there are two things I would love. One, to support our show on Quibi. We put a lot <laughs> of work into it. Mm-hmm. Um, follow us on two- Twitter at The Nod Show. Follow <laughs> us on Instagram at The Nod Show. There Share you with go. your friends. But but the other piece is, I think, a question. I think uh, I think there's a, a reasonable question to ask Spotify or Gimlet, which is why do we not deserve a piece of what we created? Mm-hmm. Why do I, I think that question is important and they are not necessarily listening to us, but I think they will listen to the people who 
you know, who they're asking for support from, their listeners, their their supporters, the people who they want to appeal to. And so I think that question is important. I think hearing from people, if you if you feel so moved, mm-hmm. you know, to ask, why don't we deserve a piece of what we created? That that would be a big help to me because I, I still don't know that I have a good answer for that question. Uh, but I also think it's the answer that they would give would be important to many others as well. Hundred percent. Um, I definitely I second everything that Eric said. The thing that I hope is that for people like us who have maybe like regrets or things that they wish that they had done differently, if you're in a position to be able to share what you know and what you've learned with the people around you, do it. If you are white, even if you have not achieved what you would consider success, I guarantee you are making more money and getting a better deal mm-hmm. or at least less of a raw deal than your colleagues around you who aren't white. Um, yeah. Share with them your information, like share with them everything, like it, it, share with them what you're making, how many vacation days that you have, yeah. like d- be as open and transparent with your colleagues as possible. And also, um, and if, if that's something you don't feel comfortable doing at the very least, don't stand in their way when they mm. might, you know, decide to come together collectively and ask for more. And then I also would just say that wherever you see, like, you know, like I said, this we're one situation in a very specific part of media, but these types of things are happening in workplaces, like at every single level of every single organization, every single company in this country, yeah. in this world even. Yeah. If you're in a position to be able to do better, pay your employees better, help other people around you be able to demand better or demand better yourself and still be safe in a way that maybe some of your colleagues or coworkers couldn't, don't be afraid to put yourself out there because if one person is being shortchanged, it, all it takes is for a little bit of a tie to turn for your ass to be on, yeah. <laughs> for your ass it. to be in, in some it. shit. So, yep. Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us on Here to Slay. And uh, we hope that all of our listeners tune in to The Nod on Quibi. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yes, it's honestly, it's been a pleasure. This has been awesome. Well, that was an eye-opening conversation, Tressie. Woo! It felt like the history of Black people in its own way. So Mm -hmm. this is what I heard. Cannot wait to hear what you heard, my friend. The first was (laughs) all of that gaslighting that happened to Uh them. I mean, the telling them that their show didn't bring any intrinsic value to a white platform, the idea that you couldn't promote it, couldn't market the show, that your idea is good enough, but your voice is not, right? Like Mm -hmm. all of that gaslighting. Then I heard the piece about going into these negotiations with these organizations without anyone on your side. I didn't hear anything about a lawyer, a representative, uh, an agent of any kind. That terrifies me. Uh, And, you know, I I alluded to it when we were speaking um, with Brittany and Eric, but I just kept thinking about Prince um, because I'm old and I love Prince. (laughs) And I just remember even long before I knew what like intellectual property was, um, I will never forget when he changed his name to the symbol, you know. The whole part of him doing that was about him trying to reclaim his masters or the control of his catalog, his musical catalog. He said, you can't make money off of me in perpetuity without me getting something from it. And how radical of like a Black take on like ownership and autonomy that was um, and how we clearly need to keep hearing the lesson 
over and over and over again. So what did you hear? I heard the exact same thing. And what was interesting is that the gaslighting has worked so well that they still think yeah. that they don't have any power. Uh, and I, I just want every creator listening to this to know that you need an entertainment lawyer, even if you have an agent, especially if you have an agent. And what's great about film and television is that they insist that you have both an agent and a lawyer, mm -hmm. and sometimes even a manager. Um, without an entertainment lawyer, you're not going to get everything you deserve. And uh, it was they, they seem like really intelligent, creative people. They have great ideas. They have great chemistry. And to hear that they don't own a piece of their show, because a good lawyer would retroactively get them a piece of their sure show would. even now. And yep. that they are just, a, you know, like that they still think that they don't have the power in this situation blows my mind. And it happens yeah. all the time. I, you know, I don't think people realize like what, like for me and you, we actually have a team. We mm -hmm. both have representatives at William Morris Endeavor yep. Yep. who represent us. We yep. have a lawyer who is a shark. Yep. And makes people very and angry. funny about it. <laughs> but people listen to him eventually. I have never had anyone walk away from the table. Eventually, he breaks them down. Now, that's a good point. So, but now let's be real, Roxanne. Uh, this is, I think, really helpful for our audience and why I, I thought it was so important for us to talk about this a little bit. Yeah. Um, because there are not a lot of Black women in some of the spaces that we are in. Certainly not sure. ones that have some of the resources that we have can't tell you how weird it feels for me personally, by the way, to be able to say that, but it Same. is. It's um, bizarre. And it's really easy, I think, for an audience to say, oh, well, yeah, of course, you're Roxanne Gay. Of course, you have a lawyer. What I think people need to understand is you became Roxanne Gay because you had the lawyer. Like, it doesn't right. happen after the fact. It is part of how you become that. And let me tell you how difficult it was for me to get accurate representation um, as a writer, as like a public person who does work. So that is real. And so I want to acknowledge that, yeah, you don't know where to start. You don't know where to find an entertainment lawyer. It's not like you look up a entertainment lawyer or a literary agent or a speaker's agent uh, in the phone book or what have you, or you can cold call people. There are absolutely, uh, you know, real structural impediments to getting that representation. Mm -hmm. What I want to say is that it is worth the putting yourself out there to do whatever kind of networking, begging, pleading, uh, <laughs> sending of the emails and the messages that you have to do as early in your career as you possibly can to get that representation. You know, it's not a guarantee of everything you might want, but it's having an army behind you. You may not win the battle, but you know that you aren't fighting alone. And so one of the things Brittany mentioned in her conversation was that white people mostly need to talk about the realities mm -hmm. and, and how much they're making and, and also some of the benefits that are not financial, the fringe oh, the, benefits, the fringe benefits, yeah. the fringe benefits that you might get, whether it's at a job or in a contract, uh, I hope that Gimlet someday comes up off it and gives these mm -hmm. young people um, at least a percentage. Uh, yeah. They're not asking for the insane. whole thing. Their names are on it. Their faces are on it. Their blood, mm -hmm. sweat, and tears is in it. Gimlet, I'm just going to go on the record and say it. They should be shamed. Named they should. and shamed for this. 
I think that it is ridiculous. Um, and our next guest, Shantavia Johnson, would so agree with us. <laughs> yes, she would. <laughs> we brought Miss Shantavia on to speak. Listen, lover, lover, mm-hmm. lover. She is a brand strategist and a writer at the intersection of law, innovation, and pop culture. And let me tell you something. If you'd hired Shantavia, Shantavia would have told you to go get your IP right at the get-go. She says the price of entry to protecting ourselves is much lower than we often think it is. Yes, normally we gather people, but today we're going to let Shantavia gather us. Shantavia Johnson is a highly acclaimed writer, a speaker, a commentator. We have collaborated, and I hope for us to collaborate more in the future. She is an expert, y'all, at the intersection of law and innovation and pop culture, which I'm not sure people would think about as being interrelated, but that's something we're going to get into today. She has also built the Brand Plus Business Academy, which teaches working professionals how to start their businesses and build their brand so that they can create new income streams and do more of the things they love. You sound like you goop, but better. <laughs> I am goop, but better. I'm goop, but I'm not. I, I, I know what I'm talking about. Oh, well, oh no, listen, this is a safe this is space. A, this is the place for the truth. And it you is. have just spoken the truth. It listen, is what it is. I, listen, and I have already had my outs with goop. So you are in good company. <laughs> Welcome to Here to Slay, Shantavia. Thank you so much for the invitation. I am excited to be here, excited to talk about brands and people of color and making this money. (laughs) Okay, great. Uh, You know, I'm so excited that you're here because I think about branding a lot for a lot of reasons. My wife is a branding expert, and so she's all about the brand. But more importantly, I'm a writer and creative writers say that they're not a brand and they don't want to think about branding because they feel like that is some sort of corporate sellout type thing when creativity should just be pure. And I actually get where that comes from. And when people ask me about my so-called brand, I actually cringe and and I want to mm-hmm. like distance myself from that. And yet creativity, especially in this day and age, does require branding. So how can we bridge that gap between not wanting to become a brand in the negative sense and recognizing that we do need to be able to market ourselves to develop an audience and really sustain income. So I love this question because I don't really like the whole concept of branding either. What? (laughs) I don't like it in the traditional sense and we can get into why, but I really think The way I think about branding is showing up as your authentic self, not some corporate made up version of yourself, not some let me look the part, but not actually feel like I'm the part. I believe if it's if you're messy, show up messy. (laughs) If Hmm. you cuss, show up cussing. (laughs) If you (laughs) feel a certain way about the thing that you're selling, show up with all of that. And I think one reason, especially people of color, feel complicated thoughts around branding, around this whole concept of intellectual property, is that it is really, is problematic. It is antithetical to our culture. If you think about just Mm -hmm. the history of the world, right? Like before Western society came in and created this whole private system of ownership, African traditional knowledge was passed along from generations to generations. There was no privatization, no monopoly. Mm -hmm. Ancient Chinese medicine, 
Central and South American herbalist practices. So this is something that we just don't fit into very neatly because we culturally are built to think differently. But we have this system now of intellectual property, of branding, of all these things. In fact, the whole concept of personal branding was created by a white man mm-hmm. in about like 30 or 40 years ago. So these are relatively recent uh things that are antithetical to the way our culture thinks about sharing knowledge and sharing ownership. So I get why we feel funny about it, but this is the game that we have. And if we're talking about creating generational wealth, generational ownership of things, we have to get over it a little bit, but also Mm -hmm. in terms of branding, show up authentically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I absolutely love the way you went and relocated our discomfort with branding in the cultures that produce us. Because like Roxanne, I also struggle with this idea of what I am expected to sell of myself and what I have been taught I'm supposed to not do, which is you don't sell out. I mean, we even have a whole language, right? That's right. (laughs) Culturally about what a sellout is. And it is a betrayal. It is unauthentic. But then we're told to sell ourselves constantly. Um, And I think because of that gap, we might make some very specific missteps, as it were, or misreads of the game, as you said. This is the game we've got. It's the one we've inherited. And I also love that you put it that way. We didn't create it, but this is the game we've got. So what, in your experience, are some of the missteps, especially the ones I think specific to people for whom this does not feel natural? Because I feel like white dudes are born selling themselves. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? It's the rest <laughs> of us who have to like make some uneasy peace. What are the things that you see us misread or misunderstand? So one has been in the news for the past couple of weeks, that Lady Antebellum. Yeah, yes, we just spoke about that. Yes. Yes. And so Lady A did an interview recently where she said, now, I didn't think about trademarking the name because I didn't have the money, number one. There were some other people using it, but I felt okay sharing. And that Mm. culturally is how we feel a lot of times. We feel okay sharing. But when we do that, we do run the risk of, of what, happened, what happened with Lady A happening to us, which is a, a typically white creator or, mm-hmm. quote, creator <laughs> swoops in. They, they monopolize the thing that we have created and we have developed. And typically, because of what you just said, Tressie, which is you know, oftentimes white men create the rules and the person who creates the rules skews the rules in their favor, mm-hmm. we oftentimes lose out. And so one of the things we can do, and Jay-Z said it years ago, think of yourself as a business man. <laughs> and one of the things I even teach my own clients is that ownership is everything and not ownership in the sense of you need to just take, take, take from culture. But you own the thing so that you can create the story, you can create, to Roxanne's earlier point, the brand, you can create what you want. You can create the narrative you want and you can monetize it in the way that feels comfortable for you. Mm -hmm. So the first thing I think often is thinking of your cultural capital as having significant value and protecting that value. Mm -hmm. And so that would be the first thing really thinking about everything you create. I mean, your tweets. So like you guys may remember a few years ago, what was uh, her name? Mina Lioness was a British singer. She tweeted first. I just took a DNA test. Turns out I'm 100% that That's right. Yeah. 
And, you know, we tweet all the time. I know both of you are prolific on Twitter and, and everything else. And we don't always think that each and everything that we create has value. Mm -hmm. But it really does. A 17-year-old created the phrase on fleek in her mother's car outside of a Burlington coat factory. And so we think of these really benign things sometimes that we do as just being the things that we do, but they actually can have value. So I think that is really one thing, thinking about your cultural capital as value. And then number two, taking the easy early steps to protect your business and to protect yourself from issues. What are some of those steps? Uh, because I think about this a lot because, and Tressie runs into this as well, everything I tweet ends up in a news article yes. in the New York Times or USA Today or The Atlantic. And uh, people act like I'm supposed to be flattered. But, mm -hmm. you know, my tweets are just my tweets. And you're building entire an entire brand of journalism around them. It's every day and it's multiple mm -hmm. articles a day. And that I don't say that as braggadocio. I, I find it frustrating. And... Mm -hmm. Um, weird because <laughs> it's just bad reporting. Like Jesus Christ, go read a fucking book. <laughs> but um, tweet that. You know, <laughs> <laughs> what are some of the steps that we can take to protect our property, and especially what are some of the steps that under-resourced people can take? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, I, this is this is a great question. So, first, in terms of social media, social media is the I hate to say wild, wild west, but it is. It is like everything goes. Anything mm -hmm. you tweet, anything you post, you can be pretty sure at some point it is going to be used. Mm -hmm. And some things we are not going to be able to control in and of themselves because, I mean, Tresa, you said it best. White men have created the rules around mm -hmm. even Twitter and how the things that are posted on Twitter how they can be used, right? And so what we have to realize is people who consume social media and use social media, Black women use Twitter more than any other ethnic mm -hmm. group, right? And we have created billions of dollars for mostly white men who have created Twitter. If they are going to use your intellectual capital in that way, if The Atlantic is going to use your intellectual capital in that way, which they can do because Twitter has created rules that allow them to do that and a American copyright law has right. created rules that allow them to do that. Mm -hmm. How are you going to simultaneously either leverage your own intellectual capital or create things that leverage that intellectual capital? So by that, I mean, here are the practical steps you can take if you want to create a business, a brand, whatever. So the first thing is register a business. I don't care if you don't think you have anything to sell. If you have a personal brand, if you want to create multiple revenue streams, you should register a business. So you can create an LLC. That is what mm -hmm. is typical for folks just starting out. That on average is about $300 according to the most recent Small Business Association or SBA data. But like even at that, it's a lot cheaper in some states, but create a business, register a business, get a tax ID number that is free, mm -hmm. create a bank account that might be $50 or however much it costs to open a, a business bank account in a bank, not a personal bank account, but a business bank account. And I understand some of this is complex for people who are underbanked as well, but mm -hmm. Create a bank account or like if you use Cash App, what, whatever you're using, create a separate place for your business's money. 
and then create an IP strategy, an intellectual property strategy. Some of that stuff is free. There's some things you can do for free. We can talk about all those things if you want through copyrights and trademarks. Some of those things cost money. But if you take those four steps, register a business, get a tax ID number, get a bank account, and create a strategy around the things you create, you have started out ahead of probably 60% of people who are out here hustling. Mm, mm, mm. And I love that you call it the hustle because I've been thinking about this a lot as a sociologist, as a writer, as a person. I'm really thinking a lot about how Black women hustle in particular, like what's available to us to piece together the hustle. We have talked on the show over the last few weeks a lot about that given COVID, um, everybody having to figure out what hustling will look like. Um, uh So the reality is, as Roxanne called it, under-resourced people start from a position where we can't stop life to do these things, right? Like, you know, we're all being called on to like do now multiple things, as you point out, multiple revenue or income streams. The reality of doing that on the ground, you know, is kind of tough when you're juggling so many other things. You work with a lot of clients and you've thought through this and you know what the side hustle looks like. What has been like a successful side hustle process? Like how do you keep your eye on the ball? Don't get duped by the, uh, you know, the whatever that's emailing you saying we can set you up for $5.99 or like, you know, because it is a lot to process as a person who's had to do it while I'm also running a job, teaching, traveling, blah, blah, blah. So what does a successful side hustle look like and how do we keep from getting duped? Oh, man. So how much time do we have? Because <laughs> this is a dissertation. <laughs> yeah. Well, then break it down for us. Break it down. Okay, so first of all, come see me in the Branded Business Academy. But separate there and you apart go. from that. There you go. Separate and apart from that, those, those three things I just mentioned, get an LLC, get a tax ID number, get a business bank account. That may cost you a few hundred dollars. Even that I know is a challenge. But to be in business is to make hard choices. When I started my first business, my house was in foreclosure. I had just mm-hmm. taken a $100,000 pay cut from a job. I was about 30 years old. Girl. Yeah. My mother was about to kill me. And I literally, I took like my grocery money and I started my business and I just had like, you know, beanie weenies or whatever for a little while. So some of it is you are going to have to spend a little bit. You ain't got to spend a lot, but you're going to have to spend a little. The other things though, in terms of not getting sidetracked, not getting hustled out of your money. Right. Is to, so something that I teach is called the rule of one. Okay. And the rule of one is really all about focus. Mm -hmm. And by focusing, I mean, you sell one idea, you have one idea, you sell one product and you sell it to one person. And when you focus that way, so like, I mean, obviously I have more than one client, but I'm focused on one client and one idea. Mm -hmm. And it typically, what I, what I suggest to people if they're starting a side hustle Start with something you already know and where you already have results. And it could be anything. Like, I just signed up for a course to teach my daughter how to braid hair. She's 10. She Uh wants to learn how to braid her own hair. 
And I know you're writing about this, Tracy, about That's black right. women and hair and that kind of thing. This is a woman who, you know, she's not a millionaire necessarily, but she can solve my problem. Mm-hmm. So I am going to pay her for the privilege of learning how to do this thing, which I don't know how to do myself. And so if you can get focused on one thing that you already know how to do and where you already have results, then you won't get distracted by a lot of the, oh, well, you can also do this. There's There are uh-huh. black women who they're speaking at the church. They are braiding hair on the yes. weekends. They yes. are cleaning houses Tuesdays and Thursdays. Yes. They, I mean, and I know we have to do some of that. We have to do some of that. But what if you just got really focused and instead of charging $10 an hour, you charge somebody $500 to do the one thing you really, really do well. Oh, and so I feel like you calling this me is out. I, I feel like you calling me out. <laughs> Shots fired. Oh, I, I think we're both being called out here. Oh, but, God. Uh, I can what take if we it. did Shots one fired. thing, Roxanne? Have you thought I, I about mean, that? I don't know, Tressie. We're black. I don't know that we are allowed to do only one thing. I know. Thing. Baby, listen. You can do it. You can. It does feel so weird, though, because if we did mm-hmm. one thing as black women, it would somehow oddly feel selfish. I don't know. No, I get that. Okay. It does feel selfish, but here's what I'm suggesting, though. If you're creating a side hustle, so your question specifically about mm-hmm. side hustles, when you have a lot of other things going on. Do the one thing really well, create systems so that it starts to build itself. It can work on its own. You make enough money doing that one thing. Then you can go out and do other things. You have time now. You have systems in place. Mm -hmm. You have, instead of you braiding hair every Saturday, you've created maybe an online course or an app where you teach people how to do it. You pre-record videos. It's working on its own. Then you go out and do that next thing that you're really interested in. So I'm not saying you only focus on one thing. And I know we feel like we have to be working all the time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And I mean, I look at my mother. She's always had m- multiple things mm-hmm. going on my whole life. And I mean, the thing is, do you want to live like that? Do you want to always be doing something for someone else instead of getting really clear on the thing you can do for yourself? So at any rate, that's one thing. Mm-hmm. So getting really clear. On the thing you're good at in your side hustle, getting clear on the thing you're good at, setting thriving prices. That's the other thing. Uh, Thriving prices. I love that framing. (laughs) I'm going to remember that phrase for a while. (laughs) I need to figure out what my thriving price is. Actually, let me not lie. I know what my thriving price is. I was about to say, girl. And I do charge it. <laughs> I love this thriving prices. Okay. Set thriving prices. Who was, I think it was Bozema St. John. She did an interview a couple of years ago. And she said in this interview, know your number, do your research, make it high as hell and say mm-hmm. it first. <laughs> make sure Ooh. people know mm-hmm. if you're going to come here, then we have to set some ground framing that mm-hmm. it's going to cost you. I have set thriving prices for myself. See, I have a thriving price. And when it comes to writing, I have no problem asking for it. Uh, When it comes to consulting and public speaking, 
Thankfully, I, I have an agent who handles that. But sometimes people come to me and they say, what's your fee? And I always hem and haw and, and I'm just like, I don't mm-hmm. know. It is what it is. And you got there because you've done all this work. You know, you don't just wake up one day and say, hey, I'm going to charge you this dollar amount. It's because you are Roxanne motherfucking gay. <laughs> and you can set the price that you have worked really hard to get to. And, you know, White men do not flinch. <laughs> they right. do not flinch. If the fee is $100,000, then it is $100,000. Take it or leave it. They're mm-hmm. coming to you because you have something of value. And I've never worked with a black woman who's come to me and said, here's my fee. And I think, oh, that's too high. I often think, wow, that is way too low. Mm-hmm. I never think mm-hmm. it is too high. Mm-hmm. And so I think we just have to get comfortable with it. And I know that it's hard. But so many people are capitalizing on our genius. I saw somebody tweet yesterday that the woman who wrote White Fragility is making like on the order, yeah. like 20 times what black women who've been doing this work for years mm-hmm. make for speaking and consulting. Like, yeah. How is that? equitable how does that meet the aims that all of these protests are about right now like it just doesn't make any sense but we oftentimes don't know the number so Mm -hmm. it's good Roxanne that you know the number and this is why I love what Bozema said like go ask some white men what are you making let me tell you something I'm in all of these uh, academic women's groups and several Mm -hmm. of them are black you know for black women And I don't know, once every two weeks, somebody posts the same question. Somebody just asked me to come Mm -hmm. talk about blah, 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 consult on this. And always something related to race or in their scholarship Mm -hmm. or research, right? And what should I charge? And every single time, it's the only thing I respond to in this group, by the way. I actually only keep my membership at this point so that I can respond to this question over and over again. Because I cannot tell you how I had to learn what the fees were for academic speaking um, and consulting. Nobody would tell us. Yep. Nobody would tell mm-hmm. us. Do you know the first mm-hmm. person to tell me what she charged for her work? Who is that? Roxanne Gay. Wow. <laughs> yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That makes complete sense. Yeah. I, you know, I'm I'm open about it with black women. Yeah. Yeah. And and women more broadly. I depending on select white women, mm-hmm. but mostly it's black women because unfortunately when you talk about money, people should talk more about money, but the general public tends to punish you. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. whatever the number, it's too much. For a black woman especially, yeah. They think Correct. no matter what number we say is too much. In this in these groups, I see black women offering to do work that is going to take them 15, 20 hours Mm -hmm. of prep, design, and delivery. And they are stuttering to ask for $500. $500. The white men that you point out, or Robin DiAngelo, as you point out, the author of White Fragility, people who get famous on the work that we do, will charge 10, 15, 20, 30,000. 30,000, y'all. And I come into this group every time and go... I need your base fee to be 10000 And everybody falls out. And we do it every two weeks. Mm-hmm. Every two weeks. <laughs> but the resistance that we have in this moment, if you could tell us how Black women can get over our hurdle of asking for our price, especially right now when there's so much economic insecurity. I think that gets to us. Like, we know the unemployment is high. We know there's an economic crisis. You know, you get that panic. 
right? Right. So in this moment, how do we ask for our price? So I think a few things. So what you said happened with you and Roxanne is important. Mm -hmm. So do you have people in your field or related fields who you can trust to be transparent with about money? Mm -hmm. And start talking about how much you charge for things. So I was a law professor for a decade. I'm a lawyer by training. The Wait, first Fred, time, but you're 20 years old. How? I was about to say, look at a girl. Look at her. Talk about 10 years. No crack. I know. Excuse me. Excuse me. We got questions. Go on. I drink a lot of water. <laughs> well then. Um, <laughs> But the first time someone came to me and said, hey, what do you charge to, I think it was to be like an expert witness in a lawsuit or something. Uh -huh. I called Tanya Evans, who is a law professor. Yes. Her mother is a lawyer. And I said, hey, what should I charge for this? Her mother gave me a number. Tanya gave me, well, they gave me the same number. I added a little bit because I figured, why not? That's <laughs> right. Okay. I gave that number to the firm and they responded back so quick with a yes. I realized I should have added probably another zero <laughs> because mm -hmm. it was so quick. But I think finding people you trust to talk to about money mm -hmm. is important. I think that to the extent you're, you're working with a, an entity or an agency that publishes salary data, that publishes information, or if they're a nonprofit, they have to file their taxes every year. Oh, the, the good. Documents good. are public records. This is how I find out a lot about how much people are charging for things. Mm. Go oh, that's look. so smart. <laughs> Go look at that tax that's form. Smart. That's that right. Is, damn, that is a hack I will not forget. That's right. We can go look at their financial records. You can go look at their financial records. Smart. And if okay. they are a public agency, you can submit a FOIA request to get them. Mm -hmm. And so they, they have to give you those things. So I think doing your research is also very important. Tracy, you said something the first time we met at wh wherever it was about, like, what did the last white man get? <laughs> you know? That's right. Give me that. that is. Give me that. So mm -hmm. to Roxanne's point, do you have allies who you can trust to help you figure out the number? Because I think having the number is the important thing. But what's even more important, once you know that number, even if I know, at minimum, it should be $10,000. I've got to do some personal work to get comfortable saying $10,000 yes. without searching. Right. Yep, yeah. that's right. And that goes back to knowing your value and understanding that our intellectual capital is so incredibly useful. Another like 10 years ago, 15 years ago story. There was an interview with the president of Harpo Incorporated in a magazine. I cannot remember which one. This changed my life. I was in law school. And the interviewer asked him about Oprah's company, Harpo Incorporated, and about them being a digital company or media company or something. And he corrected the interviewer and he said, we are not a media company. We are an intellectual property company. Mm. We are a company that owns all of the things that Oprah creates. And look at how that has has created for her and it's not just about money but how it's created financial wealth it's created economic independence and it's allowed her to do things in other communities and so thinking about yourself as an intellectual property company even if you know you're a speaker or a writer professor whatever 
at the end of the day, you are an intellectual property company and the things that you create have value and people are willing to pay for that value. They wouldn't come to you if there was not some value associated with the thing that you're creating. Shantavia, we could talk to you for another hour. I have to tell you. Yeah. We mean this when we say this, we're definitely going to have you back because- you bring up so much and like about allies and like, for me, I didn't even figure out my price until my white men speaking agents told me what their other clients are getting. Mm-hmm. And I was so stunned and I was so like sort of embarrassed about the funky ass little fee I was charging and thinking I was living on the hog <laughs> that I I now know that you really do need those allies who tell you the truth. But we have to let you go. But before we do, we have this question we love to ask, especially the Black women who come on our show. How can we help you do you and support you in your endeavors? And also, how can our listeners support your work? Oh, man. So this is my favorite question I've ever gotten. (laughs) Because it's usually always, what can you do for me? And not the other way around. Mm -hmm. So thank you both for your commitment to supporting other people. I think two things for supporting me and for, frankly, supporting other Black creators and other Black entrepreneurs. So we live in this information economy. We're creating content constantly on social and other places. So one thing you can do for me is share my work. I I have a website, Shantavia.com. I have a YouTube channel at Shantavia.tv, where I share information like this every day. The, the piece I recorded this morning was about Cardi B and WAP and what we need to learn from Cardi B and WAP. Mm-hmm. So this is not just like your stuffy business advice. This, this is stuff that relates to the things that are happening in the cultural zeitgeist right now. So following my work is, is important for, for a lot of reasons. Following other Black creators' work is very important because our stories don't get told enough. And obviously... To the points both of you have made, when you follow, when you subscribe, when you share, there are ways to monetize that beyond just the follow and the like and the click. And so supporting and following Black creators is important. The second thing, if there are people who want to start personal brands, they want to build businesses, come enroll in the Brand and Business Academy. I've walked through all of these things and more. And for folks who are just getting started, if they just have an idea or they don't even really have an idea, they just know they want a business, they want a side hustle, they want to create generational wealth and not just generational wealth, but generational freedom. Come holla at me at BrandonBusinessAcademy.com. Girl, signed up, sold. (laughs) Had that shit ready. Anytime. (laughs) We're bringing you back. Go ahead and get your life and your schedule together. You have a standing invitation on top of that to come back and just set us to rights anytime. Thank you so much for your time today, Shantavia. Thank you both so much for the invitation and for the work you do. You are saving people's lives, and I mean that legitimately. And I I just so appreciate the work that both of you do. Thank you. Thank you, girl. And that's our show for this week, y'all. Join us back next week here on Here to Slay. Are you enjoying the show? Of course you are. Do you have ideas for guests and topics? Of course you do. Let us know at H-E-A-R-2-Slay on Twitter and Instagram and at gmail.com. And from Luminary, uh, Here to Slay is executive produced by us, Roxanne Gay and Tressie McMillan Cottom, with Keisha T.K. Dutess. The show is produced and engineered by Gabrielle Horton and Camila Salazar. 
And that is all we have for you this week. We will see you guys next week at the same time in the same place. And we hope you enjoy what we've got coming for you. Okay, no. so what? Oh, I'm sorry. What are, oh, oh yeah. just, we are on the exact yes. same page. We vibing, we vibing. Yes. <laughs> if you're enjoying what you're hearing, and let's be real, you're enjoying what you're hearing, join us over on Luminary, <laughs> where you can hear more of Roxanne Gay and me and more of our great conversations, including an episode where we speak to Sarah Silverman about comedy, wrestling, and Donald Trump. Visit luminary.link slash black voices. That's luminary.link slash black voices.